0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on March 26th. was said by those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us the path of life. May we receive the words of our Savior and walk in that path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Most of us have seen at one time or another a beautiful picture. Not just a picture of an individual, although those can certainly be beautiful, but it's something that displays a picture of a broad landscape. Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a city. But something that immediately makes you glad for the opportunity to have seen that picture. Great artists take a long time in making such pictures. The world in the shape that it was at the time of Christ was a pretty sad picture. The only way to restore the world to what it was intended to be was through death. It took the death of Jesus. But even before his death, it demanded multiple times of him giving way to what he physically probably wanted to do. And we all know what it's like when someone says something to you, when they contradict you, when they cross you up, and you know what you want to say to that person, and it's not, I bless you. Right? Our feelings range anywhere from... I'm sorry, my good man, you just disturbed me a bit. All the way to, well, I won't say what the other extreme is. You could, well, don't fill in the blanks. That wouldn't be good either. But it demands to enact the picture of beauty, to bring the beauty of God's world to bear, we also must die to ourselves. This passage teaches what it looks like to die to yourself. The Sermon on the Mount is God's call to live as priests, His priests in His world. It teaches us what it looks like to walk as virtuous, flourishing saints in the world. It is not the abandonment of the law... But the call to love the law, to delight in it, to walk in it, because the law, as we saw last time, is our path. It reveals to us how to love God and love our neighbor. Thankfully, we're freed from the do-whatever-you-feel-like mentality. Love is whatever you want it to be. No, the love of God is very clearly set forth in His Word. So you don't have to worry about making it up as you go. He tells us what it looks like. After the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, that is the Beatitudes, culminating in the charge that we are the salt of the earth and light of the world, He calls for honoring the laws. He fulfilled it. But then in the rest of this chapter, chapter 5, Jesus expounds what it looks like to love our neighbor from the inside out. These passages are not intended to increase our burdens. When I was young, I remember hearing the Sermon on the Mount taught in such a way that it actually would make the law heavier. Oh, you think thou shalt not kill bad? Well, it's actually worse than that. And it was used as a heavier law to try to make you say you need Christ. And that is true. It points us to our need for Christ. But this is not something that he's saying... This is, the the law's harder, you can't do it anyway, don't even try. No. This is the call to God's people. This is our calling. Jesus manifests here the purpose of the law from the beginning. That is to reveal the fruit of our hearts. It shows us what is in our souls. Killing and death have been with us since the fall. Jealousy, vengeance, demanding vindication because of your perceived unjust treatment, maybe it's maybe it was unjust treatment, maybe not. But this was manifested in Cain's murder of Abel. Sometimes in the little Bible storybooks that we get, we get the idea that Cain and Abel were just, you know, loving, perfect, awesome brothers, always giving to one another, but then just the last ten minutes went, went really wrong. I don't think, because we know that sin was in the world, it probably wasn't just the last ten minutes where things took a nasty turn. You have in Cain and Abel the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent displayed. In Cain we see the serpent's offspring. We see the serpent himself working in Cain until at last he is overcome when his sacrifice is rejected by God. And he, in response to what he perceives as his being wronged, he lashes out not at God himself directly, but at God's image bearer, his brother. That sin abounds then in Cain's descendant, Lamech. Who boasts to his two wives that he avenges 70 fold on a man who wounded him. So not only will Lame, remember the curse on Cain. Anyone that would harm Cain, he would be avenged sevenfold. That was from God. Lamech said, Oh, I'm going to do worse. I'm going to give it 70 times. So not only will I take vengeance on someone who wounds me, I'm going to kill 70 of his offspring. I will teach them to not mess with me anymore. This is how feuds began and continue. That's why something, and we'll get to this later, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not some harsh penalty. It is a restriction on harsh penalties. The natural desire for justice and restitution left to itself never remains quiet. When we perceive that we are wrong and we just let the feeling that we were wrong just stay there, and we, it doesn't just stay there quietly. It grows. It thickens into a hardened mass that consumes every healthy thing around it until it eventually overtakes the host. Jesus, in this passage... Begins by addressing a legitimate biblical command Thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. This has nothing to do with the civil restrictions on murder. Jesus embraces that. He, he is saying it's perfectly legitimate, or excuse me, he does not contradict the Old Testament command that one who murders should himself be killed. He is, he is not addressing the penalty given by legitimate rulers for legitimate rulers to execute. He is addressing those who would take this on themselves. So he goes on though to say, yes, you've heard that. Allow me to explain. One who is sinfully angry with his brother places himself In the line of Cain, that is deserving judgment. Cain killed his brother and deserved judgment. So the one who is angry with his brother deserves judgment. Now is there a place immediately, because we all know enough Scripture, we know that there is a such thing as righteous judgment. Is that right? Yes, there is. To see injustice, to desire it, to desire that the one who is wrong be vindicated, that is a good and right desire. However, how many, let me just ask you, how many times have you seen yourself, your friend, your neighbor, someone who executed their own version of justice and they said, this is just righteous indignation. How many times have you seen that performed in a godly way? Maybe you have. But most of the time, it doesn't happen that way. That's why God did not give individuals the sword to enact legal justice. So after that, that first round, he said, "Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, or in other words, sinfully angry... He says, he goes on to explain how the anger increases in severity. First, the person is angry unjustly. But then the next step involves insults. The next thing is calling your brother, calling the person. He says the word "reka," or it means ignorant or worthless fool. So when you call someone stupid, ignorant, something like that, that is an insult. And he said that one is in danger of the counsel. And then the next step is to call someone an obstinate fool. And by obstinate, someone who refuses, who who knows what's right and refuses it. Someone who is bound for hell. Reprobate. Piece of garbage. I wish you would. That's the last step there. Now remember, these are just words. How many of us were taught growing up, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's in what chapter in Scripture? Jesus actually says the counter to that. Words are the thing with which God made the world. Words are given to create. Yes, word. there is a place for words to pronounce judgment. He does that. But we cannot give ourselves over to anger. Now, don't take this passage as an automatic this-then-that statement. In other words, if you ever call someone a fool, that means you're going to hell. I heard that before. But most of us are probably not going down that road. Jesus instead is bringing to our mind a gradual increase of bitterness and callousness in the angry person. So you have first unchecked anger that remains in the mind and heart. Next, a mild verbal expression of that anger. And finally, condemning your adversary openly as being one who is totally apart from God. And Jesus doesn't even say whether or not the person who caused the offense, the, 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 the person with whom you are angry, he is not even talking about whether or not that person is right or wrong. There are plenty of times where we have a legitimate reason to be angry, but your anger can poison you to death. The consequences of anger also grow. Going from the beginning, he said, one who's in danger of judgment for holding sinful anger in his heart to then the counsel, going before actually having to, in the old Testament you would have to, if you committed a murder, you could potentially go and your case would be heard by the local city leaders, and they would make a judgment. But then finally, the one who condemns his neighbor as an obstinate, as fool, as a reprobate is in danger of the fire of Gehenna, which is translated hell. Gehenna was a place of continual fire. It's a place in the Old Testament where pagan sacrifices happened. And eventually that place became a trash dump. You would bring your trash there, and there was a continual fire that would burn, and it would stink for miles. You didn't want to go around that area because of the smell. This is not the last time Gehenna is connected to our words. James ties them together in James chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. He says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and serpents and all things in the sea is tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. When he says that our tongue is set on fire by hell, he's saying our tongue is set on fire by Gehenna, by this trashy place that's always burning. Now, there's more to this than just an idea. And James was probably not racking his head and saying, where is a fire that I can talk about? No, this was universally known among God's people, uh, among the Jewish people to whom James was writing, Jewish Christians. But you've been around people who are bitter, people who are angry, How much time do you enjoy spending around angry people? How much time do you like spending around those who all they can talk about is how they've been wronged, how they've been mistreated, and that they're angry at this person or at that person, and do you remember what so-and-so did to me or said to me? And then that eventually, that hardens and it becomes, it's everything. Everyone is out to get me. And it pervades all of their lives. Just like the, the, the fire of Gehenna, That would, the smell would permeate all the atmosphere. A bitter person's words permeate their entire home. When inflamed by anger, the tongue destroys... God's creation. That's what James is saying. Your words can cause extensive damage to the souls around you. Just as worshiping God in our words and with the attitude of, of our heart transforms us, we believe that when we worship God, we don't just come and do this because it's an awesome thing and we have nothing better to do on a Sunday. We do this because He calls us to and we are transformed as we worship. In the same way, when our words are used and our attitudes are, are given towards our neighbors, towards our, our, our spouse, our children... Our words transform us and the person to whom we're speaking. We don't see the destruction we cause to the souls of others through words. But as James says, destruction is the exact word for it. We were made to imitate our Creator who framed the beauty of His creation by His Word. And we can also, with our tongue, unleash... Excuse me. He can also unleash, with His Word, a plague, fire, overwhelming flood, simply by speaking it. Parents, Dad, Mom, our attitudes and our words towards our children... can destroy what it's taken years to create. Through your looks and your words, there's a lot of damage that comes. Now, maybe you're like me, and you think, as long as I don't say it, and I just give a really hard look, that'll get the point across. Because at least I'm not using the words. They still get it. If you're communicating frustration, bitterness, and anger to them, you can do that just as well with the eyes that God has given you. As Jesus will say later on, the lamp of your body is your eye. You communicate that way as well. And your kids can read it better than anyone else except maybe your spouse. So we're called to a, at no, with nothing less than saying a supernatural life. Because James was right, no man can tame his own tongue. It takes power from on high to do that. Also, kids, this is where confessing your sin to your parents and to your siblings really important. Because everything you say to your brother and sister, everything you say to your parents has an effect on who you're going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. The things you say change you. And it changes some the people around you. The difference between you just being a brother or sister And actually being a lifelong friend to your brother or sister is the words that you use to your siblings. So use good words. And when you sin against somebody, confess it. So as we've seen, the the one speaking here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, gives himself more and more to the way of Cain whose thoughts eventually resulted in the act of murder itself. And notice, Jesus doesn't even get to the act. That, that's understood. Everyone knows you don't kill someone else. And no, Jesus is not saying that, the, that, that murdering someone, that being angry and actually killing someone are moral equivalents. He's telling us, though, that the one who gives himself over to anger chooses to abide in your own chaotic destruction. What is it that God used when we read in Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void, when there was not just emptiness, but total disorder around, When, when it was that... What did he use to bring that into harmony? His Word. God said, let there be light. The light shines in the darkness. Well, the light comes to us and reveals to us what light is. He reveals to us how we walk in the light. And when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, what is the result? We have fellowship. One with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're called to walk in the same light. What are we then, what are we to do to keep from becoming that person? Because it's not just a don't do this, it's really bad. Jesus says we're called to strive for reconciliation. And he applies the necessity of reconciliation to two different scenarios. One of that of worship, the other of debt, one who owes a debt. So in the first case, he says, if you bring your gift to the altar, in other words, the offering you're going to bring, remember the, the, the situation at the time, people would on occasion, they, they would bring their gift to the temple, they'd bring their offering. Well, so when you're on your way to bring this necessary, important offering to the temple, and then on your way you remember, there's a problem. I've done something to someone. And this is really, it's fascinating how Jesus turns it around here. Because this is now, if, if you remember that someone has ought... Let me just read it. Remember that your brother has something against you. So maybe it's you're the one who's caused the anger, or maybe your brother is the one who's caused the the anger in you. Whatever it takes, pursue reconciliation. He's saying that reconciliation is a necessary part of your very worship. You can come to church, you can go through the actions, you can go through the motions, and you know what? Worshiping is good. It always has been good. But if you come and you worship where there's bitterness and anger in your heart, you are not getting to what's actually going on. You're not dealing with a problem. Your first act of worship towards your Creator is to be reconciled to your brother. Because it's better that you leave off worship than that you allow growing anger and bitterness in your soul. The second example is of a man who owes a debt to another. Before the matter, he's saying, when you're in the way, that means when you're on your way to the court. Because there's a dispute. You say, I don't owe this. Your neighbor says, you do owe this. So, so there's a dispute. What, what does Jesus say to do? Find a way to make it right before this thing goes public. Before it becomes a display for everyone else to see. Because once it goes there, and you know this, once a problem between you and another person opens up, once that actually is made public, how much harder is it to be reconciled then? which is a, a reason we, are, we must not give in to the desire to gossip about those who offend us. Because the more you gossip, the more you slaughter someone's reputation, the more difficult it is to be reconciled. You're building further walls between yourself and that person. Because you, you might be able to take care of it, for yourself. But now what have you done? You've actually built a wall between that person and the one you've talked to. So Jesus says, "Be reconciled to them. It's better that you should make an agreement even if you have to give something of yourself. Even if you have to pay a debt that you don't think you owe, that's better. Than you should make it, take it public and you should potentially go to court." And you be made to pay before everyone. So from these examples, we see that reconciliation with our brothers and sisters is life-giving. Now there are people with whom we cannot be reconciled. If someone, if you've been a part of someone's life and that other person is bitter and naturally they have all all the, you know, their skin is slightly thinner than a sheet of paper, and everything that you do, whether good or bad, it doesn't matter, they're going to be angry. I'm not saying that you apologize for breathing. That, that's not your, your call. How many people, how many times were people offended by Jesus? Many. How many times did Jesus apologize for speaking what was true? None. Now again, be careful because we're not Jesus and not every word that we speak is perfect and sinless. Okay? May feel like we're sinless at the time, but it's not always the case. So when we sin, do what it it takes to be reconciled, though. If you've sinned against someone, make it right. But then if someone has sinned against you, what do you do? We like the idea of going to someone and saying, you know, you really angered me. Well, that may not be the best way to handle it. But you can choose to not hold that sin against them. Now, I'm not saying you grovel. Groveling is not a fruit of the Spirit. Confession and repentance is a gift of the Spirit. Doesn't mean you have to agree with someone on everything. It doesn't mean that you now say, okay, because I've been having this really hard time with this person and now I finally, you know, I I confess what I did and, and we found a way to make this right. Doesn't mean you have to go fishing every Saturday from now till next Christmas. Together. It just means don't let there remain bitterness between yourself and that person. As Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath and give no place to the devil. Retaining bitterness in your soul is like leaving your front door open with a porch light on in a bad neighborhood. You wouldn't do that. Neither should we keep bitterness in our heart. So what if then you realize, you you heard this and you say, Oh boy, I have really blown it. I just had my birthday two weeks ago and I've sinned 46 times just since my birthday. Whatever it is, you see the sin in yourself and you know I have fouled myself up. I've added to the burning. My house is not a pleasant place and it's largely because of me. Where do I start? You start right where you are. You serve the God who makes all things new. He says that explicitly. Behold, I make all things new. Not only can God renew your soul, your tongue, and your home, He can turn your words into a place of refuge and healing. This is where Proverbs 18.21 can come in, where he says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Has nothing to do with, oh, I just got to pray hard enough and then I'll get whatever I want. No, you can pray and you can use your words and you can help other people become who God wants them to be, which is a much greater thing. Proverbs 15.4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. If you are united to Christ, brother and sister, the living waters of God flow through you. That's what Jesus said. Whoever drinks the water that I will give, from him shall there be living waters that flow into everlasting life. As you walk free from bitterness, wrath, and biting words, He not only remakes your soul, but uses you to heal the souls of those around you. In Him, our tongues are transformed from instruments of chaos into tools of Eden. So use your words to restore the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wisdom from on high. Thank You for giving us life, and for giving us the example of Yourself who uses Your words to create and restore. We pray that we would do the same through Christ our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's K I R K.